0: All right, good afternoon or whatever time it is, wherever you're joining us today. Thank you for being here for our latest webinar on censorship and entanglement and corruption, the Israel Lobby 2021 agenda. My name is Dale Sprzanski. I'm the managing editor of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, and I will be your moderator today. Just a little bit of background about uh, what we're doing here today. Since 2015, the Washington Report and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy I've held Israel LobbyCon at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. to critique the powerful pro-Israel lobby. While we can't presently hold this popular conference in person, we can still gather with top experts and with you online to focus on how to transcend harmful Israel lobby initiatives and to work for better outcomes. This extra online series does not replace our annual conference, of course, but provides ongoing timely analysis until we can once again convene in person at the National Press Club. So before we begin, uh, just an important reminder about our sort of ethical guidelines and standards for this event. We work to ensure that our speakers, moderators, and attendees do not use any of the platforms this is on to perpetuate racist or bigoted behaviors or practices Our conference stands opposed to anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish, white nationalists, and any other form of racism or expression of bigotry directed at any person or group. And we also reject the charge of anti-Semitism when it is used to silence legitimate criticism of Israel's policies and practices, which happens a lot these days. And with that, I will introduce our speaker today, Grant F. Smith, probably very familiar to all of you. He's been moderating a fair number of our previous extra webinars. He's the director, research director of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy in Washington, D.C. He is the author of two unofficial histories of APAC, titled America's Defense Line, the Justice Department's Battle to Register at the Israel Lobby as Agents of a Foreign Government, and Foreign Agents, APAC from the 1963 Fulbright Hearings, to the 2005 espionage scandal, as well as books Divert and Spy Trade about Israeli espionage within the United States. Jeff Stein of the Washington Post designated Smith as a Washington, D.C. author who has made a career out of writing critical books on Israeli spying and lobbying. Justin Raimondo, the late editorial director of antiwar.com said, quote, I thought I knew something about the Israel lobby, but reading Big Israel showed me I had only been scratching the surface. Grant Smith Smith digs deep into the history and methods of one of the most powerful and feared lobbies in this country. At a time when foreign influence on American politics is a major preoccupation, this book throws a spotlight on the foreign agents that no one talks about. His latest Grant's latest book, The Israel of the Interstate Government, Rise of the Virginia Israel Advisory Board, published in 2019, is about a new kind of state government entity. And he'll be discussing that during the second half of his presentation today. And with that, I will hand it over to Grant for a presentation. We will uh, take your questions for those of you on Zoom. You can use the Q and A feature to submit your questions. Those of you uh, watching on YouTube, are encouraged to send your questions via email to Israel Lobby Extra at gmail.com, which you can see in the background of both Grant and I. Uh, so, and we will get to those questions, keep them coming in. And with that, Grant, happy to hear what you have to say on this important topic.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, Dale. And just to add one more technical note if you uh, hear a, a voice chiming in, uh, Reading questions during Q&A, that's Julia. Don't be startled. She's also backing us up here, backup moderator for Dale. And uh, so we're going to start here, mainly because we can, using a poll to get a little bit of information from you all about just how much you think you might know about the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, AIPAC trying to see whether we've got a virtual hall full of experts. Some people who say, yeah, I, I, I know a little bit about that, or not much, or almost nothing. And you know, as of right now, it looks like most of you who are voting in the online poll, sorry, YouTube stream, uh, think you know something about APAC, about 69%. So that's good. And I may circle back with a much harder question for you a little bit later on. But It looks like a fair number of you know something about the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And that's a very, very good thing. So I'm going to mainly be basing my presentation uh, on a series of slides. And I'm sure Dale will jump in if they're not looking good. Um, but um, to start off, I'm going to first take a look at APAC, and then I'll move on to uh, an extremely important, extremely relevant uh, topic on the Virginia Israel Advisory Board, and. Uh, finish it off with Q and So, to begin with, APAC lobbying and and the definition of lobbying that we're going to be using today. The definition of lobbying I'm using today is quite strict. I'm talking about uh, direct lobbying in terms of lobbyists and financial expenditures. That actually appear in legally required mandatory disclosure data. it is spent, and the lobbyists are mobilized to draft legislation or portions of legislation and then get members of Congress to sponsor it and introduce it and shepherd it into becoming law. So this lobbying as disclosed. Also involves some footwork with federal agencies and preparing the way uh, for them to get the White House to sign it into law. So I'm not really talking about voting blocks, grassroots organizing, educational outreach, organizing protests, holding annual meetings, doing public relations, The direct lobbying I'm talking about is what's reported under the Lobbying Disclosure Act of 1995 and which appears in quarterly activity reports with the clerk of the U.S. House and the secretary of the U.S. Senate. So just to clarify, that is what I'm talking about. And it does take an enormous amount of financial and organizational wherewithal to be able to mount those campaigns uh, over the long term with full-time lobbyists, lots of legal support. They've got to develop an agenda that is highly conducive to their big donors. And that can readily be translated into legislation. So, so, we have got to write that legislation or help write it, sign on the members of Congress, and then keep those members of Congress in line with affiliate campaign contributor networks so there are large enough majorities to pass the legislation. And the organizations, contrary to a lot of recent news, is doing most of that direct Israel lobbying Have been around a long time and boast very, very large budgets. They're not the more recent organizations you may have heard about. So I'm therefore not going to delve much into Christian Zionist organizations doing direct lobbying. And that's because in the world of direct lobbying for Israel, Christian Zionists, for the most part, don't have any of the necessary institutional capabilities despite the many headlines to the contrary. KUFI Action, in particular, the largest Christian Zionist organization, appears to be much more of a cutout than an independent direct lobbying powerhouse. It was led for many years by David Bragg, the cousin of former Prime Minister of Israel Ehud Barak and a longtime Sheldon Adelson uh, cash recipient. It receives startup funding from the Goldhersh Foundation, which mostly funds Israel affinity organizations. Its current financing and donors are mostly unknown because after a huge battle with the IRS, which I uh, covered in my book, Big Israel, uh, they managed to win status as a association of churches. Uh, So it doesn't have to report donations. It's a bit of a black box. In fact, most Christian organizations lobbying for Israel, the other ones, uh, ever since the 1995 Jerusalem Embassy Act, were bit players, not intellectual authors, not direct lobbyists for the most part. So Kufi Action, the leader of the Christian Zionists, hasn't actually been around for very long. Uh, And there's no visible lobbying by it on top Christian Zionist objectives, as stated in their end times theology. Most of them are there, mostly following the lead of the mainstream Jewish-Israel lobby organizations, which are the ones that matter. So if we look at a year's worth of lobbying, disclosure, expenditure forms— what we see is that Christians United for Israel Action Fund and other Christian Zionist organizations only expended about $234,000 of the total $3.6 billion expended on direct Israel lobbying over the past year. And this is interesting, I think, because uh, the establishment Jewish organizations doing direct lobbying spent the other 94% of the direct Israel lobbying pie. And even more interesting, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or AIPAC, spent 86% of that. So AIPAC is really the relevant focus for a closer look at exactly what the Israel lobby has been up to and what it will be up to and trying to accomplish in the direct lobbying arena. APAC directly lobbies legislators on hundreds of pieces of legislation and, and all the while meeting with key US government agencies that will be responsible for implementation or measurement once they're passed into law. Some pieces of the legislation are huge goodie bags, mentioning Israel 40 and 50 times. They deliver cutting-edge U.S. weapons. They subsidize Jewish immigration to Israel. They lavish funds on Israeli missile research and development. Meanwhile, other direct lobbying legislation quietly inserts Israel into the very center of cutting-edge U.S. government and industrial programs, something no other country receives at this scale. Among the most interesting pieces of legislation APAC actively lobbies on don't even mention Israel or have any obvious implications for Israel in the lobby, unless one is familiar with lesser-known facts about Israel's long involvement in the United States. So to make all of this digestible, I've categorized Apex's direct lobbying initiatives into eight major categories. The first is propaganda. It's legislation or an executive agency program Apex lobbying for that directs biased or misleading information directly at Americans, foreign countries, or other key constituencies. The second is entanglement. This is legislation or an executive agency program aimed at infiltrating Israeli government entities, corporations, or NGOs into major cutting edge u.s government and private sector initiatives another is subsidies these are programs delivering billions of dollars of u.s tax dollars into israeli research and development stockpiles of completely free u.s weapon systems etc coercion is something uh A resolution or legislation or an executive agency program that directs U.S. influence to force Israeli initiatives onto other countries, often against established public opinion within those target countries. Uh, This coercion, as we'll see later, can set the stage for popular backlash against rulers with already very relatively little legitimacy to begin with. Another category is anti-human rights. This is an AIPAC legislative or executive agency program aimed at undermining the advancement of human rights, usually targeting Palestinians, though not always. Israel primacy is this interesting category I mentioned earlier. It's when AIPAC is directly lobbying on non-Israel-centric bills, simply as a way of building up influence and tacitly threatening agency budgets if in other legislations Israel's needs aren't met it's a way of constantly showing the flag in Congress another economic warfare this is an APAC legislative or executive agency direct lobbying effort trying to direct and sometimes establish U.S. agencies such as the Office of uh, Terrorism and Financial Intelligence at Treasury, to attack Israel's problem. Uh, And there's the Israel veto. This category is an initiative giving Israel what amounts to a veto power over what should be sovereign U.S. decision-making authority. So if we categorize by overall direct lobbying initiative count – ensuring israel primacy is a pax top activity followed by entanglement and unconditional subsidies propaganda economic warfare anti human rights have trailed those top 3 a bit over the past year <clears throat> while foreign coercion and the israel veto are in an upward trajectory so let's look at each segment of APAC lobbying in a bit more detail. It is quite amazing, if not altogether overwhelming, to review all of the legislation, direct and government programs, direction and government programs, receiving APAC direct lobbying attention. One is led to wonder why, for example, would AIPAC, involve itself every single quarter in the question of appropriations for the u.s department of energy the u.s army corps of engineers as it does in lobbying for h.r 7613 the energy and water development and related agencies appropriations act 2021 why does it do this is it only to keep them in line Well, by directly lobbying on non Israel centric agency budgets and programs, APAC <clears throat> can put the amounts and allocations of major US agencies at risk. So, over the past year, through the second quarter of 2020, APAC has devoted a lot of attention to the US homeland security sector, energy and water, and also the Department of Energy and the U.S. Corps of, Army Corps of Engineers. So, homeland security, energy and water, agriculture, receiving great a great deal of APAC attention. Defense agencies, State Department foreign operations, continuing appropriations, financial services, international affairs. I have a little segment there that says Israeli nuclear weapons. Well, why? Why would I put that as a sub-sector category? I believe AIPAC and Israel don't ever want to be held accountable for the Israeli theft of U.S. government-owned bomb-grade nuclear material that they perpetrated at Apollo, Pennsylvania in the 1960s. But why would they be lobbying now? Why influence the Department of Energy and U.S. Army Corps of Engineers budgetary process? Why hover over them? I believe Israel does not want to ever be held accountable for the half-billion-dollar current U.S. Army Corps of Engineers cleanup of the NUMEC site. I don't have time here to cover that story. But down below in the show notes later, you will be able to watch Dr. Roger Madsen, author of Stealing the Bomb, explain what happened at uh, one of our former Israel lobby cons at the National Press Club in a video presentation. And you can also link to his book. I've also written a book called Divert. And it's all about why Tel Aviv station chief of the CIA, John Haddon, called NUMAC, quote, an Israeli operation from the beginning, unquote. So I believe that APAC's hovering over and exerting influence over the DOE budget is important to Israel. And therefore, it's important to APAC for reasons like that, that not many people would think of, in addition to maintaining. Other helpful infrastructure like a US government wide gag order over any official discussion of Israel's nuclear weapons program, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So, whether over the State Department appropriations process, health and human services, the international affairs budget, Israel primacy lobbying is a strategy for building up undue influence for israel by apac in our system of governance apac's direct lobbying also positions israel to benefit from undue access to key industries of the future as apac inserts into final legislation uh, goodies mandating israeli access to sensitive us government and industry initiatives So, this entanglement uh, is the numerically second most important initiative of APAC's direct lobbying program. The APAC direct lobbying initiative to infiltrate Israel into cutting edge health, energy, water, military, homeland security is pretty much evenly allocated against each major within each major sector. Uh, again, such as Israel, into U.S. homeland security, into medical research, into military industrial complex initiatives, into energy and water, agro industry, health and human services. So the way AIPAC does this, is to infiltrate Israel as a solution to nearly every major U.S. challenge as a function of its omnipresence on Capitol Hill. So if APAC sees a growing rivalry with China, APAC is there to insert Israel as a solution provider to, quote, reduce the U.S. dependence on Chinese medical supplies, unquote, which is the purpose of one piece of legislation. AIPAC sees billions in tax dollars going to PTSD and COVID-19 research. And of course, APAC wants Israel inserted into that key stream of research spending. Will laser warfare, anti-satellite directed energy weapons continue to receive billions? AIPAC does direct lobbying to insert Israel and get a piece of all of that. So this omnipresence also has vast implications Or how Israel can entangle state industries and develop them as well. And when I'm saying state industries, I'm talking about Israeli industries into states. And we'll see that in the case of federal solar energy tax credits and the Israeli solar energy company Energix, which is so heavily involved in illegal settlement activity overseas and so influential in Virginia today but I get ahead of myself. Moving on to the subsidies. This subcategory is what most people think of. And if I did another poll, I would simply say, what's APAC all about? And some of you would probably say, well, sending a bunch of money and weapons to Israel every year. And you would be right. This is its signature, self-touted, Most important achievement, getting the U.S. to unconditionally lavish more military aid on Israel than any other country. And so this giant subcategory of subsidies is about half free U.S. weapons systems for Israel. And they get to earn interest on the uh, giant pile of cash they can expend on those weapons as soon as this is passed into law. Funding for Israeli missile R&D. Uh, Jewish migration, and a substantial amount of up to a third uh, just to spend on Israeli military industrial development. So just to ground ourselves in the facts, uh, the U.S. has provided Israel with an inflation-adjusted $261 billion in foreign aid from 1949 to 2019, And this does not include black budget intelligence aid. Uh, This amount is two and a half times the amount of aid that was given to rebuild Europe under the Marshall Plan after World War II. And it's far more than given to any other country. And again, if we ever get public disclosure of the black budget intelligence aid, this figure could be much, much higher, possibly twice as much. And yet, there's really no credible reason for this large S. The rationale keeps changing in terms of merit, need, benefits to the U.S. But our research indicates it's mostly a direct result of lobbying for subsidies compounded by assertions and mythologies about Israel's benefit to the U.S. So, in addition to the package lavishing $38 billion dollars, of aid over the next 10 years to deliver free U.S. weapons, a third to subsidize Israeli weapons. APAC <clears throat> lobbies for subsidies for Israeli drone development, increasing stockpiles of U.S. weapons in Israel that Israel can and does use uh, in a wide range of subsidies for Israeli industries. Uh, so here are some of the key pieces of legislation. Not all passed. Uh, in which APAC is engaged in direct lobbying for that purpose. Moving on to propaganda. Major APAC propaganda efforts include constant efforts to portray Palestinians as irredeemable terrorists, which is consistent with the subtler colonial strategy of the country. In fact, you can watch an excellent breakdown of the structure of settler colonialism in our previous extra in which Professor Walter Hickson, and this will be down in the show notes below, did a fascinating breakdown of settler colonialism in Israel compared to previous settler colonialism in the United States. But the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act of 2019 was a propaganda attempt to redefine antisemitism, to include criticism of Israel, and then making colleges and universities toe the line by cracking down on student dissent under threat of withholding education funds. Uh, The lobby is also working in legislation, H.R. 2343, to sort of de the Palestinian narratives in their textbooks. much as Virginia's Israel lobby wants to replace inconvenient facts with sort of Zionist-friendly narratives in K-12 through textbooks, which we'll look at later. Um, why is there an editorial cartoon from Apex newsletter uh, on the side of this, kind of covering up the text even? Uh, basically, it's because the title and the sort of extreme... Uh, content and assertions in a lot of these resolutions and legislation result from APAC's attempt to paint a picture, much like this cartoon, in which you have, uh, in reading the Arab mind, uh, two Western figures, which is, you know, I guess it's us, uh, coming to see the Arab world as full of fantasy, vengeance, fanaticism. No compromise, double talk, blackmail. I mean, this is, I think this is one of the best uh, pages that ever appeared in APAC's newsletter because it really reveals the mindset that they would like to distribute to the rest of us in order to justify a lot of this aid. Um, So I think it's uh, something well worth looking at. Our next category is. Foreign coercion. Foreign coercion is another extremely important APAC direct lobbying program. And one example that's really come to the head recently is the case of Sudan. It's been official US policy that the people of Sudan are collectively responsible somehow for Osama bin Laden's actions and Al Qaeda's actions, uh, because bin Laden was present in that country. Uh, And so the U.S. has told Sudan it's got to pay $335 million in compensation to victims of terror. But with the collapse of the hugely unpopular, hugely unworkable Trump administration deal of the century for Palestinians, Uh, The terms of which no American would have accepted, and we know that if they had been in the place, uh, the same position as Palestinians. The Israel lobby has turned to direct lobbying for the U.S. to bully Arab countries into establishing diplomatic ties to Israel. And that appears in APAC's direct lobbying for resolutions and legislation, resolutions such as H-Res 110, uh, Senate Resolution 709. And then, of course, APAC, as it usually does, puts a burden on U.S. government agencies basically to issue report cards to AIPAC uh, on, you know, in this case, actions taken against normalization of relations with Israel Act is, you know, a report card type piece of legislation. But let's just go back to that point of about uh, American public opinion for just just a moment. In a special report poll published by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, co-organizer of Extra and the National Press Club Conference, uh, we asked Americans the question, if you were expelled and resettled into a resource-restricted area, would you fight to return or forfeit legal, legal claims for a new life under a promised economic development plan, basically the Kushner plan? And a representative poll of almost 1,500 Americans said, no, I would fight to return to my home. So unworkable plan, the plan that's offered, not even acceptable to Americans on whose behalf supposedly it's being offered. Um, In the region, representative public polling across the Middle East, in terms of these coercion programs, reveals strong grassroots identification with the plight of Palestinians and huge support for the regional, that is, the Arab peace plan to establish a Palestinian state in Palestinian territory. But by bribing and coercing and blackmailing Arab governments into signing so-called normalization deals, before any peace agreement uh, this latest Israel lobbying initiative is setting up the region i think and (laughs) others for popular uprisings and brutal crackdowns and of course none of that will be bad for Israel which can then again continue to portray itself as a bastion of stability in an inexplicably bad neighborhood so The point of the regional poll is that 88% of the citizens of these coerced governments still refuse to recognize the state of Israel, citing political reasons, as opposed to the attributed reasons, such as is on that APAC cartoon, of religious or cultural or just simply being unfit to reason properly. Um, So, moving on to... AIPAC lobbying on the Israeli nuclear weapons program now you might not think that APAC directly lobbies for the Israeli nuclear weapons program but it does subtly and in particular it lobbies for the U.S. to coerce the IAEA the International Atomic Energy Agency to extend Israel is a bona fide participant in safeguards and non proliferation. When both Israel and the US government know that Israel is, in fact, the Middle East leading state sponsor of nuclear proliferation. From the US to Israel, from Israel to apartheid South Africa, they're the leaders. And yet, in S2583, Israel is seeking to have the state department and foreign operations and related programs coerce the IAEA into accepting Israel as a bona fide participant and not the middle East leading state sponsor of nuclear proliferation and an undeclared nuclear weapons state. So in some AIPAC lobbies for Israel, Israeli nuclear weapons. Now, our lawmakers, particularly Senators Symington and Glenn, passed laws way back in the 1970s banning U.S. economic and military assistance and export credits to countries that deliver, receive, acquire, or transfer nuclear enrichment technology when they don't comply with IAEA reg- regulation. Inspection. That's the law. It's in the Arms Export Control Act. But Israel and its lobby have successfully pressured presidents uh, and gone even further recently, uh, Clinton through Trump, to sign secret letters pledging not to enforce this law. Um, The Obama administration, through a classification guideline, which is really a speech ban, WPN 136, excuse me, WNP 136, passed rules making it illegal for any U.S. government official or contractor to discuss or release information about Israel's nuclear weapons. They want to keep this off the table because it enables so much subsequent corruption that is, it is of extreme value to have a gag order in place. And so this corruption that goes from the very top to the very bottom makes the canard known as qualitative military edge possible qme is defined by apex think tank the washington institute formerly the washington institute for near east policy is a commitment to maintaining israel's technological, tactical, and other advantages to deter numerically superior adversaries. This is the linchpin of always giving Israel more weapons, more funding, more foreign aid. And it's codified in H.R. 8494, the Guaranteeing Israel's QME Act of 2020 to subjugate the U.S. authority to Israel's authority. Um, And by completely subverting official discussions and information released about Israel's nuclear weapons, this fake discussion about, oh, Israel's at a slight disadvantage, we got to get them back up into an advantage, Um, this fake discussion can proceed and completely subvert anything rational when it comes uh, to the real balance of power in the Middle East. So, uh, even while Israel has the ability to destroy all of its adversaries by via nuclear weapons in a single stroke, we've got to have a false discussion about maintaining Israel's military superiority. So, just to uh, get back to the reality. Since the law banning U.S. foreign aid to foreign nuclear powers, non-signatories, the NPT went into effect. About $222.8 billion has been given to Israel, and by law, almost none of it should have been allowed. But presidents don't comply with the Arms Export Control Act. And over a third of the aid has been given since the Clinton administration complied with Israel's demands right at the beginning of the administration to sign the first of four secret ambiguity maintenance letters that the Israelis could carry around as leverage. Now, you can't get these letters from the National Archives and Records Administration. We sued, we fought, we spent a lot of money trying to get those letters and it's interesting that within months of inauguration, the Israel lobby and Israel compel presidents to break the law through these letters. This was broken by Adam Entaus in a June 19, 2018 report in The New Yorker uh, about how Trump and three other U.S. presidents protected Israel's worst cast nuclear or secret, its nuclear arsenal. The letters are a promise that the U.S. will not pressure Israel over its nuclear weapons program. And it's been signed by Clinton, Bush, Obama, reluctantly by the Trump administration, although they didn't last long in their opposition. So the Israel lobby's goal is really to ensure that presidents continue to violate Symington and Glenn, that laws which place restrictions on foreign aid are not abided by. And to date, no president has ever properly taken any of the steps. Necessary to properly notify Congress and other agencies that it's determined Israel is a nuclear weapons state. I mean, we have many reports that we've obtained with agencies claiming exactly that, but presidents pretend or ignore the issue and don't fulfill this role under heavy, direct, and indirect lobbying. So, in summary, U.S. aid to Israel has been illegal under the Arms Export Control Act. Uh, It takes top-to-bottom corruption, propaganda, and entanglement to maintain all of this unlawfully delivered aid. And now the Israel lobby increasingly wants laws passed to give Israel essentially veto power on U.S. sovereign decisions uh, over balance of power in the region while further entangling Israel into key U.S. sectors. And so I'm going to let everyone get up and stretch, and I'm going to be looking out there to see if that happens. No, not really. What I'd like to do is to um, get out another poll, if I may, be so bold next topic and dale give me a shout out if you see this going up because not quite sure everyone will see it but uh i think these are a lot of fun so how much do you all know about the virginia israel advisory board now as you're getting up and stretching is it up dale Yep, yep all right you can't vote dale i know you know something too much julia you still there you can't vote either but everybody else please vote right now tell us just to guide the conversation a little bit and as we move into q a and just a little bit later how much you know about the virginia israel advisory board and you're voting and you're voting and you're voting and you're saying how much you know and you're saying how much you don't know And it's all good. And it's pretty much evenly split. Here are your results. Some of you know a great deal, which begs the question, why are you up here? Maybe you will be. Some of you know some. Most of you uh, know some, in fact. But most of you know not much or nothing or almost nothing. So that's good to know. I'm going to relaunch into the next section here and get into some very interesting developments in a key state, in this case, Virginia, and what's been happening and answer the question of, well, what if lobbying wasn't taking place only Uh, from kind of the outside into U S government, but actually what if the Israel lobby became part of the government? I mean, what if, could it happen to your state? Well, let's talk about that. All right, let's go. So now we turn to the question of, you know, what if, More than just influencing the White House and Congress from outside, uh, there was actually a government agency working on the inside, lobbying, not lobbying, doing the work, creating agencies, creating opportunities from within to do Israel's bidding. Well, this is the story of the newest Israel lobbying state level initiative with a whole bunch of new updates. So if you've just read my book, the Israel lobby under state government rise of the Virginia Israel advisory board, you're just not going to know all this stuff. So don't go away. Entire government agency created solely to promote Israel. So The Virginia's Revisory Board was launched uh, with a lot of help from Eric Cantor when he was just a state legislator in 1996. And what it does is it basically scours the state of Virginia for funding pools, grants, and all sorts of state development agency and funding exclusively for Israeli companies. Uh, some of those funding pools are the Virginia Coal Field Economic Development Authority, which is trying to get the state to recover from the collapse of coal. Same goes for the Tobacco Region Opportunity Fund, doling out uh, billion, over a billion dollars uh, from the tobacco settlement, the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Uh, it also scores for federal funding sources for research grants and tax credits that can be turned into investment cash. And it really represents a subsidy-powered takeover of certain U.S., Virginia, uh, and even U.S. Uh, comparative market share, as we'll see in some real case studies updated. Um, Virginia Israel Advisory Board calls itself a board, but it's clear that it's not a board. It doesn't advise. Uh, what it does is act as an Israeli Export Promotional Council. It brings Israeli companies, it uh, consults, it lays the groundwork, it does inside market research, performs a sort of market entry strategy, then taps all these agencies for support. And it's driven by a proclaimed assertion that Israeli companies inherently have just a lot to offer in the U.S. When upon close inspection, in the case of VIAB, it's often the case that these companies are startups with no experience or lack proprietary industry comparative advantages. But by gaining the subsidies, they can get into Virginia where they subsequently continue demanding subsidies that just aren't available to Virginia companies. And the real comparative advantage here is a consolidation of the most active Israel affinity groups, which are the local Jewish federations and a bigger campaign contribution ecosystem and power base to move the government from within. So via board, positions uh, consist of four board slots by statute chapter 697 of virginia law in which there's one board member that must be appointed from each of the major jewish federations in richmond northern virginia tidewater and peninsula regions and then the rest of the board consists largely of key state political campaign contributors so it's as though as all of apac's Biggest contributors, of which there are about 2,400 paying for most of their activity, suddenly gained seats inside a federal agency. Uh, Viab has involved other large contributors in its uh, efforts to give Israel an entree into Virginia It sent the governor to Israel, lobby trade missions, and then pressured through the power of large campaign contributors for special memorandums of understanding, MOUs, and commercial deals. And it connects Israel lobbying initiatives inside and outside of state government. So these federations that back Viab and provide board members and hold meetings and discussions, also work on things like changes to K through 12 textbooks to inject an Israel-centric narrative of the Middle East into state textbooks. They work on anti-First Amendment state resolutions and laws against BDS. They cross-promote former Viab board members through campaign contributions such as VIAB, former VIAB member and new speaker of the Virginia House of Delegates, Eileen Fullercorn. So VIAB is basically inside government drafting other state agencies to become appendages of Israeli business interests. And that goes all the way from making Virginia Tech... Uh, do things on the basis of MLUs forced upon it by Viab and other organizations, the governor's office, etc, etc. And we'll get into some case studies. But the real reason Viab sprang into being is not because the legislator or formerly the governor needed some kind of expert advice. It's because Jewish federations and their associated campaign contributors created and staff Viab as board members, monitor its progress, keep a constant stream of proposals and ideas flowing uh, to advance Israel and put on Viab's agenda. And nationwide, I'm not going to get into this in detail, but nationwide, such federations and their political committees known as community relations councils, really form the backbone of APAC and uh, as constituent organizations. And you can see a video presentation with a map of that vast infrastructure from my book, Big Israel, again, later below in the show notes. But basically, we're talking about a $34 million infrastructure that's there, that's working with Viab, that helped create it. And it's like nothing else than the state. Um, The last time I uh, updated this list via board member appointment, total Virginia campaign contributions, you know, via board members were heavy hitters. They'd given $1.5 million in uh, political contributions to state legislators. And that's really why they get excellent response to their initiatives. It's not because the companies they're bringing in are so fantastic. And the key here is that Viab channels this campaign contributor influence uh, from within government rather than from without government. In other words, they're on the inside. And this is a major departure. I mean, there are Israeli chambers of commerce across the United States trying to do the same thing. But as Viab's director, Dov Hawk, used to run one of those uh you know it's not the same thing you're in a rental space you're on the outside you don't know what's going on being on the inside is critical and although virginia has other boards there's just nothing like this power profile in any of them this is truly truly unique so i want to uh start off exploring this influence um and uh, And how all of this benefits Israeli companies, all this influence, and the Israel lobby ecosystem with a story that was in the news earlier this month. And it really reveals uh, kind of a culture of Viab, privatized profits, socialized losses, uh, which is cultivated. And this is all through a story about a little company promoted by Viab called Appalachian Biofuels, uh, LLC. So the story is in 2014, vice chairman of the Virginia-Israel Advisory Board, Charles Lesson, had just seen an enormous flow of Virginia government subsidies go into an Israeli fish farming company, which I'll cover later, that promised to bring desperately needed jobs to an economically distressed region in southwest Virginia. And Lesson wanted in on this kind of big dollar action. And he didn't want his own status as a virginia real advisory board member to get in the way of that. So he formed a limited liability company called Appalachian Biofuels and teamed up with the Israeli company called Transbiodiesel to manufacture transportation fuel. And this venture had a very splashy launch and an abandoned furniture factory in the economically depressed St. Paul, Virginia. Governor Terry McAuliffe, who was elected, I must say, on the back of millions of dollars of outside of the state campaign contributions by such Israel lobby benefactors as Haim Saban and J.B. Pritzker, now uh, governor, was there. uh, Terry McAuliffe was there to cut the ribbon as Appalachian Biofuels touted 40 new high paying permanent full time jobs in Russell County. And it turns out Lesson had reason to be excited because he assembled for himself a tremendous financial package of state subsidies. A $250,000 tobacco commission grant, another $355,000 tobacco commission grant for special projects. $800,000 Uh, 800000 from the Virginia Coalfield Economic Authority. He's going to get 300000 for rail access to ship all this fuel and additional special project uh, funds. So, you know, this is uh, what flowed into Appalachian biofuels, some of it. Um, so, who was Chuck Lesson? Who is Chuck Lesson? Uh, He's most famous in Virginia for being the proprietor of Pop's Bingo World, a casino in a very depressed section of Richmond. uh, And which is run under the umbrella of a charitable organization called the Jerusalem Connection. And this is relevant to the story because. This uh, Jerusalem connection has accumulated over $40 million in revenues over the years from bingo. It's heavily involved in sending youngsters on trips to Birthright, through Birthright Israel to Israel uh, to connect. And its core mission when it was founded was to, quote, help combat the worldwide problem of assimilation, unquote. That is, assimilation being the marriage of Jews with non-Jews. Uh, And this is a picture of that December 3, 2014 ribbon cutting for Appalachian biofuels. So there's Terry McAuliffe right next to Chuck Lesson and ribbons and cake. There was cake. Uh, There were sales of cake. But cake and ribbon sales were about all the economic activity St. Paul, Virginia, got out of Appalachian biofuels. And where is Appalachian biofuels today? Well, when I last visited uh, St. Paul, Virginia in September of 2019, not a lot was happening. There was no refinery. Um, there was nothing going on. They're still looking for tenants. A bit of FOIA research revealed that $210,000 in development grants somehow never got paid back. Uh, Further research revealed that it looked like the Jerusalem connection was tapped for $340,000 related to the project to cover various problems it encountered. And the smoking gun that something corrupt happened was a release from the Tobacco Commission that Viab's Chuck Lesson had conspired with the head of the Tobacco Region Opportunity Fund not to repay $210,000 in grants. And that if he, uh, ha- if he could somehow claim that he had otherwise to create jobs, that he would be allowed to simply forget about repayment. So, You know, uh, this deal with McAuliffe appointee Evan Feynman, the trough executive director and Viab's lesson, was a special deal so he didn't have to pay $220,000 back. Uh, This year, a Virginian filed a complaint with the State Office of the Inspector General, which issued, after looking into the complaint, a finding of wrongdoing. But kind of skated over the fact that a project substitution had occurred in which uh, Chuck Lesson of Viab claimed credit for a bunch of projects he wasn't involved in to get out of his personal $210,000 debt. And so uh, Lesson and Feynman knew that claiming this allegedly public service uh, work that uh, Lesson was doing could not cover lesson's personal obligation but what happened the oig uh, letter one year after we broke the story led to a splashy associated press report on appalachian biofuels uh you know this happened earlier this month no credit given to irmap of course And they basically said what we said a year ago. Well, Trough seven Feynman let Viab's Chuck Lesson off the hook for grant repayment and improperly counted Viab projects to let him off the hook. And it kind of portrayed everything as a problem of Tobacco Commission grants, which there are, but it didn't really plumb the inherent conflicts of VIAB, of which Lesson was a part. And here are the conflicts and what everybody's missing still is that the list of Virginia, Israel advisory projects that Charles Lesson secretly submitted to get his corrupt deal with the Tobacco Commission listed vastly inflated jobs and capital expenditure claims about a company called Energix, which is a UN designated Israeli human rights violator. This list that lesson circulated carefully inside government, which was never supposed to be released. It says confidential up in the corner. Uh, listed such projects as a solar energy utility in Chesapeake with a CapEx of $45 million. When their building permits said it would be spending $23 million. It listed all these jobs, 707 jobs, which you know, most of them were temporary construction jobs. Uh, So in this case, by digging in, we can see that Lesson was claiming that just by being a government official, a VIA director, he was somehow bringing in $740 million of Israeli development, CapEx, and producing 727 jobs, and that this should wipe clean his own faulty venture into biofuels. Uh, So this is... The springboard that the press should have followed up on but didn't. But anyway, the Tobacco Commission originally redacted this list of projects, and it just showed an Israeli military contractor Orange safety glass there at the top. But this story to me reveals the true nature of the Virginia-Israel Advisory Board. It's about self-dealing foreign companies in their U.S., Agents tapping state economic development funds, over-promising, not creating jobs, not creating privacy or investment, secretly corruption. And, you know, the end result, what looks like embezzlement. So the case of Appalachian biofuels and the use of Energix in this portfolio to get out of personal repayment raises a question. What is Energix? So Energix Renewable Energies Limited is a closely held company of another Israeli company called Ohlone Hats. Energix was listed earlier this year by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights as a Category G company operating in Israeli-occupied territories. Category G means it has business enterprises in occupied Palestinian territory, And it's using natural resources located in that territory. Uh, In 2015, they contracted the construction and own 155 megawatt capacity wind turbines in the Israeli occupied Golan Heights. And it was using questionable methods to obtain access to the land from the indigenous Syrian Druze in the region. And when the local residents complained and rose up about preserving agricultural lands and the natural beauty and cultural attachments, Energix sued them in Israeli court. A place where it's really And you watch a 20 minute video filmed on location of a proposed Energix site that they want to build at the foot of a beautiful tourism area in Endless Caverns, Virginia down below it's called the energix uh uh, comparative advantage and it really talks about their unfair business practices that they're trying to unfurl in virginia they're bringing all these practices to virginia they're trying to build according to their own documents 700 megawatts in capacity by steamrolling residents located next to utility substations and paying off county boards of supervisors to win zoning law changes to build huge uh, solar utilities in places they don't belong clearly they belong in coal waste areas and toxic waste dump but you know energix has a real mindset about the value of surrounding communities that it's imported from its home turf, and so Viab brought this company to Virginia. They codenamed their Energix support project turbine, I believe, in tribute to Energix's wind facilities in the occupied Golan Heights. And self dealing has been critical to Energix's success in Virginia. Um. So Viab Southwest regional coordinator Aviva Fry and an email of hers is down there uh, really cleared the way with regulators and the governor meeting with them uh, on that basis while simultaneously being energix 's U S representative. And this was necessary because Virginia, quite frankly, is extremely competitive in the environment for solar build outs and utilities. I mean, it's, the connection point of VEST data centers for the internet. And there's plenty of legitimate com- competition in the state, but once again, Viab to get an edge had to use its undue influence, even having a lobbyist that it works with frequently, you know, this is a government agency supposedly, but MDB strategies, lobby boards of supervisors to get zoning exceptions for energies. And among the subsidies energix has received and that viab has arranged for energix are uh solar investment tax credits so solar investment tax credits um are a way to get cash uh for large solar utility build outs and residential but at any rate if energix had reached its original estimated capex for virginia it would have received 140 million dollars in tax credits, which, with the help of its tax partner Morgan Stanley, it could have turned directly into investment cash. Now, of course, this creates a tax tax gap that everyone else has to fill. Um, you know, if you remove that much from, you know, the tax base, um, others certainly have to fill it in, or the U.S budget deficit has to increase. Uh, But anyway, Energix has a huge, huge footprint in federal solar energy tax credits with its partner, Morgan Stanley, Uh, forgivable paycheck protection program loans. Suddenly, Energix had a headcount, don't know how they did this of 152 employees in the US. They say they've got 25 in Israel. But anyway, they seem to have dropped in from out of thin air and they got two to $5 million in PPP loans, forgivable loans. Now, that's a third of all PPP loans given in the $350,000 and above category to Virginia Solar uh, Energy Company. So they just sucked up 33% of that uh, you know, PPP loan count. And in 2020, this is something just announced by the governor's office, always helpful to VIAB companies. Uh, they're going to subsidize Energex's human resources costs to open its headquarters within what's basically in Ohlone Hetz, its parent company's property in Arlington County. Ohlone Hetz heavily involved in Israeli-occupied territory as well. So now there's this huge gift from the governor to build out their uh, human resource division and no other solar company in Virginia has ever gotten these kinds of gifts. So here's another Viab case study and we'll finish up here in just a few minutes or safety glass or safety glass is a military contractor formed on a kibbutz in central Israel in 79 to make bulletproof glass or as they call it transparent armor and Viab brought orange safety glass to Greensville County, Virginia area to manufacture in a county-owned industrial park, which Oren now owns. And the huge subsidies Greensville County has delivered to Oren and other state agencies have placed the county, I think, in jeopardy because of Oren's corrupt defense contracting practices. But I'll get to that. Through FOIA, we were the first... Because the uh, news media in the in the states asleep at the switch. We were the first to compile a list of all Oran subsidies from the Commonwealth of Virginia for its first three phases. And here's just a list of the one point nearly six million dollars they got in free facilities and loans and grants and everything they needed to start up and create forty-five full-time salary jobs. Phase two, they agreed. Uh, Greensville County officials agreed to go into debt to build out the facility by getting a $400,000 loan. They got more tobacco region opportunity fund grants. I mean, when you think of Viab and its projects, you got to think of the Tobacco Commission. That's one of the reasons... They're is to get that Tobacco Commission money, certainly not for Virginia efforts or smoking cessation. Anyway, the county waived all of its water and sewer permitting fees and all sorts of other things. It created um, training and recruitment incentive grants. It gave them free classroom space. So this idea of, oh, hey, we've got to train up uh, the workforce for this Israeli company, it didn't start with Energix. It's been going on since the beginning with FIAB. The taxpayers have the obligation to train a workforce for the Israeli company. Anyway, um, in 2017, the company basically gave the facility that it worked so hard to build up, transferred it to Orin Safety Glass at the equivalent of four hundred thirty-six thousand dollars. It was an asset it carried on its books for well over a million, and you know, Orin is received much more than $2.5 in state government economic development subsidies. So, you know, it's a shame because nobody's really monitoring whether they've ever achieved the job creation and capital expenditure from the private sector that they said they would get. But it has endangered its future operations because in 2014 and 2015, Orin Safety Glass bid for some contracts with the u.s army to build MRAPS, and then it delivered products that were out of specs with the requirements of the army which requires companies to build under its own recipe for uh, bulletproof glass and they discovered most of orange safety glasses product was out of specs probably endangering uh, people because it had already been sh- installed and shipped overseas in these MRAP vehicles. So Orin Safety Glass had to repay almost $5 million because of delivering fraudulently and not disclosing it uh, out of spec product. And, you know, Oren's military contracts of course went into a steep decline and as far as we can tell, they haven't received any, military contracts which is their bread and butter uh, in 2019 and 2020 so it appears that they're not getting these contracts and even though they say they're pivoting to civilian markets with uh, freight and passenger glass and displays they have yet to announce any civilian market sales so it looks like after a one decade run orin uh, has burned its own market and maybe just another appalachian biofuels Another disaster from Viab is called Project Jonah. It's supposed to be a fish farm. Uh, It received $10 million in Virginia Coalfield Economic Development Authority loan awards. They didn't get the loan, but they got awarded a loan, $1.5 million in grants, a million in tax abatements. And the project uh, has been uh basically targeting from the beginning another Virginia company which was at the same latitude and had its own proprietary recirculating aquaculture technology. The Israeli company behind this is Aquamouth Technologies, and basically it was going after the market of Blue Ridge Aquaculture, which was already successfully producing and shipping thousands of pounds of tilapia. In fact, uh This company was operating before Aquamoff even acquired its U.S. patented technology. Um, They've been engaged in all sorts of sketchy activities as they targeted this employee-owned non-state subsidized company, such as trying to close on the coalfield loan without meeting any benchmarks, such as $25 million in visible capital expenditures in the state and other approvals. And so Project Jonah uh, is also as much of an APAC as it is a VIAB project. APAC selected Virginia delegate Bill Moorfield, who's still a champion of the project, to travel on a delegation to Israel in 2015 to learn about the possibilities of an aquaculture venture. And this is you know, another aspect we're not even getting into of APAC and its affiliate, the uh, Education Foundation, which sends members of Congress to Israel And the ecosystem, uh, which sends members of Congress to Israel to the extent that one of every three members of Congress taking a privately funded trip overseas is on his way to Israel. But in this case, APAC's influence and VIAB's inside comparative advantage hasn't yet panned out. Uh, The current project, Jonah says they're pivoting away from tilapia to an entirely different industry, salmon. They tried to close on the $10 million loan, but couldn't. And so now it's fallen into a malaise in which the promoters don't want to pay back the grants, just like Chuck Lesson, And they want to claim that, oh, this project and it's over $200 million in financing is just over the horizon, just around the corner. And they've taken to presenting comfort letters from sketchy investment banks in the Cayman Islands saying, now we've got it in the bank, but we, just, we have some hurdles. And if you just extend Uh, The loan award for another year, this will all come to fruition. And, of course, establishment media, both state and local and national, is just out to lunch on this project. The Richmond Times-Dispatch could go obtain the tax records, walk around in the proposed site, ask some questions, but they don't. Uh, So in this case, self-censorship seems to rule the day. And I'm not even going to get into – I'll post these slides later so you can read it – The case of Sabra hummus uh, on the back of millions of dollars of Virginia subsidies, taking out a scrappy New England company, Cedars Mediterranean Food, which doesn't get massive state subsidies uh, and taking away its market share to see 61% of the market. Not even going to go there, but was it fair? Uh, And should the owner of the holding company of Sabra Blue and white foods get millions of more for other ventures on the back of this so-called success. Maybe we can have some Q&A on that. But according to our calculations, Virginia, which already has a half billion dollar state to country bilateral trade deficit with Israel due to the disastrous 1985 U.S.-Israel free trade agreement, uh, is on its way for a cumulative deficit of $7 billion with Israel by 2025. And this is, you know, the outcome of a Viab, APEC, pincer movement on Virginia. And you can read about that disastrous APEC and Israeli Ministry of Economics uh, industrial espionage slash lobbying effort that passed the bill uh, to create a free trade agreement uh, in my book, Spy Trade. And I'll also link a video of a presentation I did at the University of Rochester on that sordid. Uh, affair. We continue to publish reports as well about it nearly every year about how that corrupt agreement has maintained its place as the single worst performing bilateral trade deal in terms of cumulative inflation adjusted deficit. Um, But let's uh, just say that in conclusion, based on its record, Viab is clearly a profit privatizing loss socializing engine in Virginia. And through its undue insider access for its portfolio of companies, it's getting funds and clearing regulatory hurdles from within Virginia government that normal companies simply don't have. They're completely disadvantaged. And so the small handful of insiders uh, circulating around Viab And this state lobby can certainly profit in the reinvest profits and campaign contributions and increasing VIAB's power. And in short, this is the APAC model of undue influence, but localized in Virginia. And finally, because state and national news media really don't cover any of this. I mean, they did once this uh, month, but when they do, they really don't follow the threads and, The negative effect is that this is continuing to snowball and expand as VIAB escapes warranted scrutiny. And with that, it's Q&A time. So I'm going to shut this down and I hope we've gotten some questions. I know this has been a bit long and there's Dale and I'm still just about to get rid of this shared screen you know okay all
0: right well certainly a lot to digest there and it's prompted a lot of questions uh so we'll start with one question um on kind of a current event here and that is the uh reporting last week that the state department was considering to brand human rights groups such as amnesty international as anti-semitic uh presumably because of their i heard about that like this to criticize Israeli policy. So the question is: Would this move, um, why do you think the ADL, I guess, in specific, uh, came out against this move when the ADL, of course, has been a large, had uh, a big role in promoting this idea that criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic?
1: Really oh, how did we get into this? Well, I don't think you're going to like my answer. Um, because based on what i've seen about the adl you know if they're going to try to take down a politician or organization with unfounded allegations of anti-semitism they really want to have a case and this is a scalpel this is a finely edged tool the you know assertion the unfounded uh, smear of anti-Semitism, it's, an, it's, not a, it's not a blunt instrument. So what I think may have happened with the ADL in trying to get these human rights organizations listed as anti-Semitic, I don't think they object on principle. I think it's more of a tactical issue. Um, we released a series of documents that's among the most popular, thank you, in our Israel Lobby Archive, about the, Ameri- uh, the anti-defamation league in california when they were going after uh, groups that were involved in palestinian rights and linking that issue with anti-apartheid activity and the adl had its undercover operative roy bullock on the job paid through a cutout lawyer trying to distribute holocaust denial literature at pro-palestinian events So, I mean, this is the kind of thing, the the sort of scalpel-like opportunity and operation to take down uh, an opponent that the ADL has engaged in for decades. And what I think is happening with this is there's no case. It's completely absurd to think that Amnesty International is anti-Semitic or a lot of these other groups, you just can't make that case. So, what I think the ADL is objecting to is hey, there hasn't been enough groundwork to do this. I think they'd be happy to do this, but when things are ready to go, and I think they may also not appreciate the competition. I mean, this is their bread and butter. So, may not like that, but that's kind of my hip shot on it.
0: Yeah, well, every time I turn on the TV and see Jonathan Greenblatt of uh, ADL <laughs> leading a conversation on anti-Semitism, yeah. he seems to be the media's go-to guy. I want to put something on my television.
1: The um, ADL is a fascinating organization. Yeah, Fascinating organization. Sort of on,
0: yeah. yeah, it's a sort of on the, Uh Because the ADL has also been working with Facebook and other social media organizations right. to fight hate and fight anti-Semitism. So we have a question about, uh, maybe if you could just sort of go into the Israel lobbies role in that and they just want to know if you know of any organizations that have specifically been targeted uh, by Facebook, Twitter, Google, etc.
1: Well, um, I would like to venture into that topic and it's clearly hot right now, but I hear I got a wind that we might have a real expert on that coming up next in our next extra. So I apologies to the excellent questioner. I'm not going to get into that because we got somebody and you really have to come to this one who's going to cover that with a depth that i cannot
0: right so moving on uh i guess a simple question here but uh how much of apac and other pro-israel lobbying is countered on capitol hill how even is this lobbying fight
1: okay Uh, i'm just going to pull up an article that i wrote for antiwar.com comparing the uh the christian zionists and the uh, Jewish organization lobby and the ones that are on the other side. So there is lobbying that goes against APAC. Not everybody's uh, on Capitol Hill. I mean, we do have legislation for Palestinian children's human rights and detention and all of this that's happening. And some of the organizations behind that are fantastic organizations, such as the American Friends Service Committee, I mean, they have a big lobbying budget and they're up there. Um, and so they spent almost as much as Kofi Action, almost $200,000 lobbying. And this is in, uh, again, an article I wrote a couple of weeks ago. You can see it at IRMEP.com. The National Advocacy Center for Sisters of the Good Shepherd, Christian organization lobbying for Palestinians in occupied territory um, and others, you know, even even J street lobbies against some of this, although it's kind of hard to put them into, from my perspective, uh, the other bucket, because they also spend a lot of money uh, lobbying for unconditional aid to Israel. So it's really hard to say uh, whether anything good that they're doing up there and they're doing some good is really balancing that they spent about $231,000. So um You know, you would hope that there was this well-funded opposition up there that can counter some of this. No, there really isn't. Not on a direct lobbying basis.
0: So you mentioned J Street. So I wanted to ask this question. Uh, Against your advice, we ran an article in the last issue of the Washington Report, kind of in which the author argues that evangelicals and sheldon adelson they've really been the main drivers of trump's policies not apac not j street and if biden wins j street apac are back can you kind of i guess give us your thoughts on that which i think is a pretty wide view what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah yeah well um i guess the reason i don't um agree with a lot of that is that when you hear some of the positions, it looks almost as though some of these Christian Zionist organizations are being used as props. They're being used as the fall guy, particularly with things like the Jerusalem embassy act, which it was a mainstay program of APAC ZOA and all of these others. They really came up with it in terms of passing the legislation passing the special component of, you know, to avoid sovereignty and separation of powers issue that you got to do it or we'll withhold funds, but you can also get a waiver every six months. So they put in this little poison pill that eventually would have to be swallowed. And they really shepherded this thing through. And then you have uh secretary of state Pompeo and Trump and others saying, we moved the embassy and we did it for the Christian Zionists because this is what they want. Well, yeah, they wanted it. Uh, did they conceive of it? Did they shepherd through the legislation? Did they uh, design this, what I call again, a poison pill to make sure it could pass separation of power issues? No. They don't, They never had the infrastructure or ability to do something like that. So I think a lot of uh, these organizations have true power, you know, Uh, the christian zionist organizations are true grassroots uh affinity organization my argument is you know in case in the case of the jerusalem embassy act whether they were on the case or whether they had never come into existence it still would have happened why because the lobby that does the most direct lobbying wanted it to happen it was going to get done one way or another
0: Very good. All right. So I'm going to piece together a bunch of questions on the same topic here. And they're all focused on how do we fix this? So questions being: what is the best strategy to end this corruption? Uh, what is the largest organization that has the teeth to protect American interests? And would eliminating corrupt political financing uh prevent the Israel lobby's activities?
1: Yeah. So if I had a little box that I could sell on Amazon, which said the key to winning the argument on behalf of justice and human rights and, uh, freeing up a better policy, uh, I think we would all be buyers of that, but my role here today and, publicly is to continue doing the work of outlining the nature of the problem. And just like in this, you know, focus on who's really passing the legislation, I just still feel that most people don't know enough about the basics. So I'm not going to get into the magic bullet, the secret box with the solutions in it. I can tell you there are a lot of solutions and there are a lot of incredible people particularly in Virginia right now, who are doing amazing work and getting real results. Uh, But I still think the real work and the real purpose of extra is to continue revealing the nature of the problem, because once you know what the nature of the problem is, you can really focus your solutions. But if you really don't know what's going on and most people don't, then you can have no role whatsoever, no productive role in solutions. So, you know, if you want that, here's something incredibly self-serving. You really got to go to our annual conference and the breakout sessions and the networking events, and then you got to keep meeting with those people and keep working on solutions and really spend, you know, 10 hours a week focused on this as vital work. Uh, But I'm not going to get into that. Sometimes when you talk about it, you can destroy the initiative. But other times, I mean, you know, I just think that strategy sessions are best conducted in private.
0: All right. Fair enough. So uh, we'll move on to another question here. And this is sort of about uh, federal efforts to stop the lobby as unimaginable as that seems at the moment. Uh, but so your own organization. <laughs> your yeah. own organization filed a lawsuit against uh Treasury Department to release the names of uh key officials at the office yeah. of terrorism financial extension. How's that lawsuit going? Maybe give us an update on that. And someone else would just like to know, I guess additionally, should Biden win, do you have any hope for federal intervention on this topic?
1: That's a great, great question. Um 30-year-old Joe Biden, I'll start with that, would have been uh, upright and demanding on some of these issues. Uh, I think our friends over at Mondo Weiss have shown that those days have passed. I think that uh, no one's going to have to pressure him into signing a letter saying that he's not going to pressure Israel on its nukes, that he will be willing to undermine the NPT and the IAEA, that he's going to continue with the QME facade. I don't think there's any hope there. Um, As far as the lawsuits, I mean, yes, we did file a lawsuit against the U.S. Treasury Department, simply saying, you know, look, this unit has been led by all of these hardcore Zionist operatives from one law firm year after year. They've been presenting all of their public meetings at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. APAC lobbied to establish this economic warfare unit in Treasury. So who's working there? Who else is working there? Not just Stuart Levy, uh, not just Sigal Mondecker, who apparently has Israeli citizenship, but who else? And um, they will not release it. And we've been in court with them since mm, 2017. And that case is still going on uh the judge tried to dismiss it and then didn't issue reasons for why for nearly a year it's just a mess and you know it doesn't give you any great confidence just like looking at what's being done with our non-proliferation regime and arms export control laws to see a court just unable to answer the basic question of hey who's working at this government agency um you know this is something that has been a tradition in the U.S. We know how much our government officials are paid, and we know who they are. Well, in this case, we don't. Um, so it's not going well. It's very costly, um, but we're still fighting. Uh, we just had an exchange with the Justice Department last week on this, and things are going badly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: to hear that. All right, we're going. I guess we've been going an hour and a half plus here. But uh, maybe I'll close with one question uh, sort of pertaining to things that have been going on recently. And I guess this is kind of the uh, military industrial complex meets Israel lobby. So apparently the Trump agreed to sell the UAE F-35s. So I, I guess maybe in your unique way of looking at things, how do you sort of compute the power of the military industrial complex to want to sell money to the UAE? versus the power of the Israel lobby that wants Israel to maintain an advantage, but of course, at the same time got these major quote unquote peace deals done uh, Yeah. rolling out. So yeah. yeah just your thoughts on that, just
1: to sort of spur that on you, to throw it on you right now. Yeah, Dale, <laughs> I mean, I want to hear what you think. Um, you know, it it, <laughs> it looks it looks exactly like what it is. It's an arms race that benefits yeah. Israel and the UAE and is gonna land on the taxpayers' lap. I mean, it, it looks like you know, a fake fight. Oh, you know, nuclear armed Israel might be slightly disadvantaged by UAE, which, you know, has never been at war with Israel. It's, it's a farce and it's all born of this QME, uh, again, canard that everyone who's anyone in Washington pretends is real. So I think it's terrible. I mean, there are so many other, U.S. programs, not to mention our pandemic needs that could be served, um, that giveaways and you know trying to outbid UAE purchases with more giveaways to Israel is not going to help. So I'm sorry, but uh, it just uh, it just looks like a three-way race in which the U.S. taxpayer is going to lose. <laughs>
0: I'd like to bring in just one final question if I can. Um, actually, it's a combination of questions that came through email. This is Julia, um, basically hey, saying Julia. that <laughs> um, you know that with, this, with all this awareness of what's happening even at the state level, you know in Virginia and in Florida, um, it's also starting to, to pick up some of these fields with Israel, as noted by one of the emailers. What is the solution for fighting back against that? in combination with another question is how, how is this power maintained? you know, how is the Israeli lobby able to maintain such influence at all these
1: different levels? Yeah, well, they work really hard. They work on weekends. Uh, meanwhile, you know, most of us are trying to figure out what's going on most of the time. So, um, you know, one of the first things you have to do is join a state group. And if you don't have a state group, in, uh, in the mix, you got to create one. And, you know, Texas is creating a great state group to look into this. I mentioned Virginia already has one other States are working on it. Um, And you really got to figure out what's going on. And to do that, you have to file freedom of information act requests because there's nothing in the news media. You'll never get an up-to-date picture of what's going on in the state news. So you've got to do that. And you've really got to, allocate, like I said, 10 hours a week, every week working on this stuff with dedicated professionals who know what they're doing, you know, not just right out of school, but people who have experience with boards of supervisors, taxpayer issues, state government, you know, people who didn't just fall off the turnup truck. And that's critical. And then every year, your group needs to go to transcending the Israel lobby at home and abroad or whatever you are calling it that year to meet other groups and swap ideas because, you know, by doing that, you can have an impact. And there are so many stories of huge impacts that groups can have with relatively high efficiency once they know what's going on. So, you know, just think about all the things that I showed you today um, that you never heard about, that you had no idea what was going on, and then multiply that by the you know other 50 states in the case of Virginia. That's what's going on. So who's managing that? Who's got a strategic approach to managing that? Uh, and who's going to our conference every year to find out best practices? That's what it takes. And if you do that, uh, you can start having an impact. But again, today we're mostly talking about what's going on, and that continues to be a huge problem. And other people need to start developing an idea of what's going on. So you can come and speak at our conference.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, I think we'll leave it at there. So thank you so much, Grant. That was amazing. And uh, I'm sure people enjoyed watching it and we'll go back to it time and time again on YouTube uh, whenever they need a reference so with that, um, I just want to point everyone's attention to our next upcoming event, which will be November 18th with Ali Abu Nima of the Electronic Intifada. He will be discussing Palestine, propaganda, and the president. And this will be an event, hopefully, at this point, knowing the election results, uh, to sort of assess where things are going forward. So I'll give you just a brief description. He will discuss post-election administration policy on key issues. The administration, will the administration demand any pause to illegal Israeli settlements? Will Israel be successful in continuing to use coercive power in the U.S. State Department and other key agencies? And he will discuss the growing social media censorship, as Grant alluded to earlier, of Palestinians and their allies on Facebook and other social media sites. So we encourage all of you uh, to keep a lookout for that. Be sure to register. We'll be sending out emails, both via the Washington report and uh, list to sign up. You can also sign up, uh, visit the IsraelLobbyCon.org website to sign up for future events as well. And of course, we always encourage you to check out this uh, Washington Report YouTube channel where all of our previous um, extra videos as well as Israel Lobby Conference, most of them are housed And it's just an incredible database of speakers and information. And with that, we will call a close to this event. I hope you all still hear me because I'm getting notifications that my Wi-Fi is bad. So with that being said, thank you so much for joining (laughs) us today for the questions. And we hope to see you again. And once again, thank you so much. Have a good one. (laughs) Thanks, everybody.